according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me this morning, if you would, in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 14, and uh, got a new verse this morning. We're moving on to verse 17. We're going to talk about the quick-tempered man. And uh, so we look at it, and then we move on from there to verses 18 and following. I don't think we'll get that far. 18 and 19 in any event. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to humble ourselves under His authority and to uh, make sure we're in fellowship, prepared to receive eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your grace and truth, recognizing, Father, that it is only by your grace that we are here. It is only by your grace that we can receive instruction. We thank you for the living human spirit we receive at the moment of our salvation and for the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, Father, who searches all things, even the deep things of God. We thank you for his teaching ministry and uh, just call upon your faithfulness, Father, now to open the eyes of our understanding We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so last week we wrapped up the last details from point 10 as we were looking at Pethi and Arum, these two characters, um, just giving proper names to the Hebrew words here. Uh, Pethi is the naive, and Arum is the uh, shrewd, or um, as we have it in verse 15, uh, the sensible, the sensible man who believes everything. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Pethi trusts anything and everything, but Arum checks it out. Arum stops to consider. He stops and, and, and checks to see whether this is an object that is appropriate and worthy of faith, or whether this is an object that should not be worthy of faith. Faith in God is always the right object. God will faithfully provide evidence for trusting Him. Faith in the wrong object is never praised for its own sake. The Bible does not come along like the multiculturalists will today and say, oh, come on, faith is faith. No. uh, When you place your faith in the wrong object, there is no value to faith. The value to faith is always in the merit of the object, not in the activity. Because if you're trusting a lie, if you're believing in a lie, if you're believing in a false god, it's worthless. Right? We understand this. So uh, faith for its own sake. And so the Bible never praises the, uh, the uh, Moloch worshipers because they're devout. Never praises the Moloch worshipers because they have faith in Moloch as they sacrifice their children and throw their children in the fire. Never. Faith is always in the appropriate object. And uh, then it's praiseworthy because of the object, not because of the activity of faith. So faith in the wrong object is never praised for its own sake. And then this idea of shrewdness, the idea of um, a room being sensible, uh, even though the Bible introduces it negatively with the serpent, the serpent was more shrewd, more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. That's the first use of it in the Bible. Uh, but that's the only really negative use of it in the Bible because everywhere else, and certainly through Proverbs, the consistent testimony is positive. 
We want to be shrewd. And that's a purpose clause early on in Proverbs chapter 1 so that we can have this kind of discernment. The, the wisdom of God is going to equip us to be able to evaluate and look at things and see, is that worthy of my faith or is that not worthy of my faith? Do I need to turn away from that? And, uh, and so forth. All right, so that's what we wrapped up last week. And now we look at a quick-tempered man in verse 17. And this is point 11. The quick-tempered man is paralleled with a man of evil devices. So when you look at the first half of verse 17 and the last half of verse 17, you see the, the parallelism, the poetic structure and the parallelism of it. Uh, we're also going to bring in verse 29 as well uh, in the same chapter that addresses the short temper, the short fuse sometimes we say. Um, and so this is, the, uh, this is the contrast that's being drawn. A quick-tempered man acts foolishly and a man of evil devices is hated. And this is uh, more of a synthetic parallelism than the antithetical parallelism. Most of what we've seen in this portion has been an A statement with a but in the, uh, and, and a contrasting B statement. You know, you can just glance down the page and see all the, all the buts on this page. We had uh, the, the but in verse 16, uh, where a wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. And most of these verses, you can just scan down the page and you're going to spot the, the but, but, there's an and, but, but, and, but, but, there's an or, okay? And so anyway, it's just a way to, to scan down the page and spot the, uh, the, the word there that begins the second portion of the, of the verse uh, in, uh, in these two-line uh, uh, poems. Well, here it's an and. And a man of evil devices is hated. And uh, it's not a but, it's an and, and it's, but it's structured not in pure, um, synth, uh, not, not synonymous parallelism, but actually synthetic parallelism. The first one leads to the second one. And that's why we, we see a progression, we see an intensification, and why we want to stop it at the first level and not, not take it to the second level. In other words, we don't want to advance in our anger. We don't want to, um, if, if we do have an anger issue, then we want to continue to struggle, continue to confess. We want to stop that anger issue at the, at the, uh, uh, on the earliest stages. We don't want to graduate. We don't want to graduate into the upper levels of anger that uh, take us to some very dark realms called evil devices, uh, called plotting and scheming. And that's what we deal with in the second half of the verse. So the first is a thoughtless fool. The first is a thoughtless fool. He acts foolishly. He acts foolishly. And so he's, he's taking action. The action is prompted by his anger, but he hasn't really thought it through. It's not really, because, it's not really a thought process so much as it is an anger reaction in the first half, the quick-tempered man. The second guy thinks it through, and that's far worse. Not only does he have a temper, but he calculates on the basis of that temper and he plots, and he's shrewd, uh, not, not shrewd, but we see he creates these evil devices. And uh, that uh, has a consequence. He is hated. He is hated. So when you're graduating to this level of sin, uh, it's remarkable. Not only, uh, so who, who hates this guy? Who hates this guy? Is, are we talking about God hating him or fellow sinners hating him? Uh, does he hate himself? Who, who is the uh, subject of the hatred in uh, 17b? Well, it doesn't say. I think it's everybody. 
I think it's God, I think it's himself, I think it's his fellow man, even his fellow sinners. Clearly the, uh, the victims of his evil plots, they're going to they're gonna hate him. Um, you might turn that question around and, and in, in addition to asking who hates him, just ask the, ask the inverse of that. Who doesn't hate him? <laughs> right? Who wouldn't hate that guy? Who would, uh, who would, who would uh, enjoy the evil devices that this uh, angry man has been inventing? As I mentioned, we also have verse 29 of this context, so we can look down there. Uh, he who is slow to anger, and that's the idiom we're going to see. It's an expression that describes God. It's the opposite expression to quick-tempered. We have quick-tempered in verse 17. We have slow-tempered in verse 19, or verse 29, rather. Okay, And these are the opposite idioms that are employed. There's quick to anger and slow to anger. Slow to anger is what God is, all right? So anger itself is not sinful. We can be, sin, we can be angry and yet do not sin. Let, let, let not the sun go down on your anger. Okay? And so anger is not the sin. But the quick-tempered man that acts foolishly, that, that's wrong. That's got to be dealt with. Okay? But he who is slow to anger has great understanding. And so we can imitate God and we can be slow to anger. We should be slow to anger. But he who is quick-tempered, same phrase we have in 17a, he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. He's acting foolishly, he's exalting folly, he's putting that folly on display for everybody to watch and say, hey, look at me, I'm a quick-tempered man. <laughs> right? Hey, look at me, I'm a hothead. Watch how stupid I can get. Okay? And, uh, and there you have it. So, a um, couple of subpoints under this. And then when we can recognize that uh, God has made provision for this, and this is curious to me, Um, that God has made an antidote to uh, the short temper. And it's not, it's not uh, the evil of the schemer. Okay? The correct antidote to short nostril is long nostril. <laughs> okay? We have short nostril, long nostril. And that's the Hebrew word here. The, the word for anger is nostril. Okay? And it's, it makes you laugh every time you read it. Um, but it's, it's just the, the, the imagery behind it to the Hebrew mind uh, is the, the, the flaring of the nostrils, the snorting, if you will, and, uh, and an angry bull that uh, you know, is, is, is uh, flaring the nostrils and snorting. Okay? That's an angry bull, and that's the imagery here, an angry cow, an angry bull, the, the uh, snorting. Even the verb to snort is, uh, is an anger expression as it goes well with the noun here for for nostrils. And then the adjective, either short or long, is how they express it. So the short nostril. The short nostril man is the one that just flies off the handle, the one with the we call the short fuse, the short trigger, whatever it is. He reacts. The, something happens, uh, a circumstance, a, a word, whatever it might be, a person, who knows. But, but anger gets triggered because of something, whatever it might be. Anger gets triggered. And the short-tempered man has a very touchy uh, trigger, right? A very touchy anger. And that's a problem. And, uh, and if it's too short, we've got we to gotta lengthen it out because God speaks of long nostril on, in positive terms. Long nostril is positive when it's applied to humans and long nostril is positive when it applies to God himself. It's one of the most characteristic descriptions in the Bible of God is his long nostrils. 
it's said more often than any, we have this ten times it's, it's spoken of of God. You know, and if you want to find, you know, go through your essence box. Go through righteousness, justice, and all the eternal life. Go through the essence box and find something that's spoken of more often than uh, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. Okay? Because we get it again and again and again throughout the Bible. So, the correct correct antidote to short nostril is long nostril. That uh, God wants us to be slow to anger rather than quick to anger. And this comes up again and again through the Old Testament and into the New Testament as well, by the way. The New Testament gives us an even greater antidote. The New Testament, because so the Old Testament says, hey, don't be short-tempered, be long-tempered. Be slow to anger, be like God, imitate God. So the wisdom literature says imitate God. Wisdom literature says walk by means of God's wisdom and have the slow fuse, not the long fuse. All right? But the New Testament takes it another step. The New Testament gives us a fruit of the Spirit. And, and by the Spirit-led walk and, and in being filled with the Spirit, then we have God's own long-suffering produced within us. As macrothumia is one of the facets there on the, the fruit of the Spirit, right? And so uh, Galatians 5.22, uh, that's, a, that's a provision. It's not just a command that says imitate God. But it's a provision whereby God's own macrothermia, the fruit of the Spirit, is born in and through us. How, how cool is that? In any event, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. So let's look at Exodus 34 and take a look at these. So um, Exodus 34. Spending a lot of time in Exodus in recent weeks. Exodus has two chapters that deal with uh, um, the thousand generations and the things I'm working on for Houston. All right, and verse 6. So we got tablets of stone that are being uh, cut out here, and uh, I don't think we need to read the whole chapter, but that's the context here. Uh, Moses smashed the first set, remember, in his anger? <laughs> okay, And uh, was he right for that? Was he wrong for that? Doesn't say, just says he was angry and he smashed the tablets now he's got to make new tablets. So, um, you know, when you do something in your anger and now you got to pay the price. You, got, you, gotta, you made more work for yourself. So, The Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. Remember, God cut out the first stone tablets. Now, because Moses smashed them, now he's got to cut out the second set. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai. Present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So cut out two stone tablets like the former ones and Moses rose up early in the morning went up to Mount Sinai and the Lord as the Lord had commanded him and he took two stone tablets in his hand. So the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him and he called upon the name of the Lord. And so here's God's patience and now he's got to do it a second time. But God very patiently is going to do this. But now notice 
Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God. And each of these you can think of as a name or a title. So you have Yahweh, you have Yahweh Elohim, you have the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. This is long nostril. And abounding in loving kindness and truth. Okay? And we have these titles. And in fact, uh, this is kind of a preview for what they're not getting in the law. The law came by Moses. Grace and truth were realized in Jesus Christ. Okay? But in any event, it's one of his titles. It's a facet of who he is. Grace and truth, loving kindness and truth. And we see it here. And so uh, this is who he is. This is Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And so just those titles. Uh, if, we, if we want a little helpful hint on how to, uh, how to turn our short trigger into a long trigger, how to turn the, uh, the, the short nostril into a long nostril, well, what's the rest of the phrase? Abounding in loving kindness and truth. Are we abiding in Christ? Are we putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh with regard to its lust? Uh, if we are abounding in Christ, occupied with Christ, fixing our eyes on Christ, then that activity makes it so much easier to be long-nostrilled instead of short-nostrilled, right? So that when the trigger comes, when the whatever the trigger might be, like I say, it could be a person, place, thing, circumstance, word, whatever, uh, we get triggered in different ways, and you know how it is, Okay? And your spouse knows how it is because they can push that trigger faster than anybody. And uh, that's just the way it works. Okay, So occupy with Christ, abounding in loving kindness and truth. It goes on, who keeps loving kindness for thousands. And the expression there, if it's in a generational context, can be rendered as a thousand generations. If you have a, a Holman Christian Standard Bible with you this morning or a Christian Standard Bible with you this morning, uh, it says a thousand generations there in uh, Exodus 34, 7. Who keeps loving kindness to a thousand generations, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And because the context of this verse is clearly generations, and because the third and the fourth are stipulated there as, as literal generations uh, involving children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations, um, my conviction is we take the thousand reference also on a generational basis and uh, render the idiom, who keeps his chesed loving kindness to a thousand generations. Uh, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And that's, uh, that's the God we serve. That's the God who saves us. Okay? And what a, what a thrill. And what a promise, see, that we have over and over again throughout the Scriptures. We're looking forward to a thousand generations. We're looking forward to new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You've probably heard that verse, right? According to His promise. What promise? Seriously, what promise? According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What promise? Well, the promise He made to a thousand generations. If in fact you believe God's not a liar and He says what He means. So, that's my message in uh, Houston. 
I'll be addressing the thousand generations, the promise of God to a thousand generations of those who love Him. Um, all right, so there we have it. Again, is anger is anger always sinful? No, because God is angry. God gets angry, but He's slow to get there. He's slow to get there because He would prefer to be gracious. He would prefer to apply grace and, and loving kindness and truth to a repentant child, to someone that, yes, he got angry, yes, he sinned, yes, he thoughtlessly acted, but then he repented, he confessed, he got back in fellowship. And so the God, God can then be merciful to that person, and he's not just pouring out wrath upon every thoughtless temper tantrum that comes down the pike. Okay? Because if he did that, we'd all be doomed. <laughs> every human would not measure up because every human sins. Okay? But the human that sins and keeps a short account and confesses, gets back in fellowship, puts himself back into that chesed uh, target zone there whereby a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ can be the object of his grace and truth. How about uh, Numbers? Numbers 14, 18. Numbers 14, 18. And uh, here is God ready to blast Israel and um, Moses is very uh, wise to pass this test. Moses passes this test twice before he fails it the third time around. But the Lord said to Moses in verse 11, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? Remember that? We looked at this just a couple weeks ago. God gives us evidence, uh, the basis upon which we should trust Him. He gives us plenty of, of testimony as to His faithfulness. And when we see all that evidence and we still don't believe in Him, woe unto us. Because God has gone that extra mile to show us how faithful He is. I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them. I'm going to write them out of the will. I'm going to dispossess them. And I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. Now does God mean this or is this a test of Moses' faith? Can God just write off Israel and make them stop being His people? Mm-hmm. Correct. He has promises. And he can't start over with, with Moses and make it mean it still counts. It can't count. Moses is just one guy from one tribe. And there are promises to all 12 tribes. There are promises to Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not just to you know, one branch of a Levitical line, of a Levitical tribe. So God made a promise, and according to His promise, a thousand generations, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the first three generations there, a thousand generations, he's going to be faithful. And so, uh, but he can't start over. This is, when he said, I will, this is, this is not literally factually true, but this is a statement that he makes in order to test them because he himself knows what he is about to do. Okay? So he's not lying, but he's testing Moses. But Mo, and Jesus does the same thing, by the way. He, uh, he, he tests his disciples. He says, where are we going to find food for all these people to eat? And the disciples are like, well, you know, send them away. We don't have anything. 
But Jesus said that knowing what he himself intended to do. He wasn't lying to the disciples. God's not lying to Moses here. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by your strength you brought up this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. If you blast Israel today, then the Egyptians are going to hear about it, and here's how they're going to slander you in the eyes of the, uh, in the ears of the Canaanites. They're going to tell the Canaanites, look at that, Yahweh Elohim couldn't deliver you, couldn't defeat you. And uh, so Moses is, is arguing with God, telling God what you cannot do on the basis of God's own character. And this is a marvelous prayer pattern that we have here. Tell God what He can't do, but tell Him what He can't do based upon His character and His promises. All right. So verse 15, if you slay this man, and uh, you know they're going to say, the nations are going to say, well, the Lord couldn't, couldn't conquer Canaan, so He just killed him in the wilderness. So um, we see this. But now I pray. This is Moses' prayer now. Moses' words. I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abound in abundant and loving kindness. Oh, well, now where did Moses hear that? Okay. Well, probably in Exodus. Probably that day he had to trump up the mountain a second time and, and carve out those stones. And Right? He heard the Lord say that. He wrote it down already in Exodus. Now he's declaring it to the Lord in his prayer life and he's going to write it down again in Numbers when he gets around to writing the book of Numbers. But here he's, uh, he's having this prayer life and he's telling the Lord, he's repeating Scripture back to the Lord. He says, remember Lord, you're slow to anger, so don't blast these guys today. <laughs> yeah, give them time to repent. The Lord is slow to anger, long nostril, abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and to the fourth generation. It doesn't go so far as to talk about the thousand generations here, but he is clearly quoting from Exodus uh, 20 and Exodus 34 and, and, and these passages here. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people. And I call this intercessory confession. When we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here is Moses praying for the, the rebels, the ten spies, and uh, all the tribes are going to follow after Him. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your chesed, your loving kindness, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. <laughs> kind of a nice reminder. You know, it's not the first time you've forgiven this people, Lord. You forgave them in Egypt. You've forgiven them every day since then. You keep forgiving them, keep forgiving them. Don't stop forgiving them. You are slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. So, the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But then he says, as I live. Okay? Then he takes a vow. Then the God who cannot lie takes a vow. And that's what we've been dealing with in Hebrews. That as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So, different things there. How about Nehemiah? Ezra, Nehemiah. If you get to Esther, Job, you've gone too far. Uh, Nehemiah, chapter 9. 
Nobody turns to Nehemiah. And it's useful um, to review history. It's, re- it's useful to, uh, to, and this is what Nehemiah is doing here, um, People are confessing their sin. Uh, Nehemiah stands up. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but on the on the twenty fourth day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting, sackcloth, and dirt upon them. Okay, and it wasn't even Ash Wednesday. <laughs> Here they are, coming back from captivity. They'd gone to Babylon for seventy years, and now the grandchildren or great grandchildren of the the people hauled off to captivity. Now they are coming back, and, and Zerubbabel's brought a, a wave back, and Ezra's brought a wave back, Nehemiah's bringing a wave back, and uh, they've got issues that they're going to have to do. I mean, some of them had married foreign women, and they had some other struggles. So the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God, for a fourth of the day. Wow. Can you imagine? We should do this sometime on a Sunday morning. Let's just take a fourth of the day. Let's have a six-hour service. How about that? And then, for another fourth of the day, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So we're going to continue. After a six-hour Bible class, we're going to have a six-hour prayer meeting. How about that? All right. Well... You know, if, 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 a, if an assembly is going through a very serious deal, then maybe it is time for prayer and fasting. Maybe it is a time for uh, something out of the ordinary. You know, they didn't do this all the time, but it was a, a unique event. All right, so then, um, notice, uh, all the Levites, uh, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Benny, all these guys, uh, they said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And then they start to recount the history. And it's a walkthrough. It's a walkthrough Old Testament history. And uh, the call of Abraham, and then the bondage in Egypt, and then the, the uh, signs and wonders, and the plagues on Egypt, the parting the Red Sea in verse 11, walking on dry ground, the pillar of cloud by day, and the, the fire by night, and, uh, and then the giving of the law. Verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and all these great things. You made known to them your holy Sabbath. See, Sabbath is older than law. Sabbath goes back to God Himself. And we're going to see this, the rest that there remains for the people of God in the book of Hebrews. It's God's rest. Your holy Sabbath made known to them through the law. Laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for them, for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them, for their thirst. Everything. He did everything for them. You told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. And so he did everything for them and then commanded, go enter into the land. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. 
but you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Okay? So now here's Nehemiah after the captivity, centuries later, and still recounting the most common expression in all the Old Testament for God that he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Now this, is, uh, this is a description of our God. So we should modify our essence boxes. We should fill in, if we're teaching our children in Sunday school, we should fill in, you know, long nostril, slow to anger. It's a character of our God. All right, so that's Nehemiah. Um, there's a couple of other items in this same aspect here, but I think it's later in the chapter. If I can spot it, then I'll highlight it. Otherwise, we'll just move on. Uh, even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal, uh, when I lost my temper, you didn't lose yours, you know, Moses could say. Um, you and your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day. You notice, he said, okay, you're going to perish in the wilderness, but he didn't take away their cloud, their pillar. He didn't take away their manna. He didn't take away their provision, even though they were under his wrath. You didn't take away um, the, the pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, or the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. There were 70 elders that were all filled with the Holy Spirit plus Moses. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth. You gave them water for their thirst. So think about it. They saw my works for 40 years. Even though he swore in his wrath they could not enter rest, they saw his works for 40 years. He never stopped showing his faithfulness. So that's, uh, that's a key. Even in wrath, we don't uh, forget faithfulness. Um, indeed, 40 years you provided for them in the wilderness. They were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. Can you imagine? You had the same pair of shoes you had 40 years ago, and you've been walking in the wilderness the whole time. You also uh, gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them as a boundary. All these things. Um, Let's see. Down to verse uh, 24. Their sons entered and possessed the land. Entered and possessed. That's the key. We're going to talk about what does it mean for us when we enter into rest. Do we enter and possess it? What do we do in our faith rest life? They entered and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land. And um, they captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of very good things. They didn't even have to build houses when they got in there. They just took the houses that were already there. Hewn cisterns. They didn't have to dig a well. It was already dug. Vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate, they were filled, they grew fat and reveled in your great goodness. So this will be our doctrine on Sunday mornings when we get this far in the book of Hebrews. There remains for us a Sabbath rest to enter into. And we need to. We need to enter into it. We need to possess it. We need to eat. We need to be filled. We need to grow fat. We need to revel in God's great goodness. If we don't do all of that, we're talking in our mental attitude of the faith rest life, then we're not entering into rest as the Father has designed it. Anyway, 
So there's uh, different aspects there. So that's Nehemiah chapter 9. How about Psalm 86? We have three Psalms where this is recounted. Psalm 86. And uh, this is a prayer of David. I incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. And uh, we get down to verse 14, and he gets specific about some of his problems here. Um, O God, arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of violent men have sought my life. They have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God, a merciful and gracious slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaid. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. And this is marvelous too. This is far better than David, normally David, a lot of times David has imprecatory prayers where he says they hate me, they want to get me, so blast them. <laughs> you know, go get them. Here he says, be gracious to me, and they're going to see that. They're going to be ashamed. They're going to observe the testimony of your loving kindness and truth. That's actually a better prayer, <laughs> I think, better than the imprecatory prayer of, uh, of just blast them to smithereens. All right? Anyway, I'm going to pass by the rest of this. There's if you want to read the whole psalm, it's worthwhile because I skipped over some great things there in 2 through 13. Yeah, if I get lost in that, we won't finish this slide today. How about Psalm 103 in verse 8? And people tell me there's no doctrine in the psalms. Are you kidding me? Have you read the psalms? Again, it's the Psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. And uh, we get down to verse 8. Uh, let's see, verse... Da, 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 da. Again, he's got enemies. There's conflict. Okay, I'm going to read this whole thing. Uh, I will give heed. No, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm in the wrong Psalm. 103. Oh, there we go. All right. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget none of His benefits. Starting with, who pardons all your iniquities. How about that? And then who heals all your diseases. You know, the God that forgave your sin and gave you eternal life. Can He handle your physical health and physical life as well? I think so who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things. Getting old? Does the outer man perish? The inner man renewed day by day? Guess what? There's satisfaction in that. So that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses. He acts to the sons of his, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. 
And so think about that. How long will he strive? How long can we, you know, do we push it? Do we take his love for granted? Do we put him to the test? Do we, uh, do we play with sin thinking, well, he's slow to anger, I can get away with a little bit. Careful, okay? You know, Jacob wrestled with him till morning and then in, at the end of the process uh, when God was done wrestling he ended up with the, the, uh, the, the, the permanent disability on his, on his hip. So uh, is he going to wrestle forever? He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. At a certain point that hammer falls. We better not take that for granted. And, and also, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. I love that. That's what I thought we were going to see in Nehemiah. That's what I was, in the back of my mind, I was looking for that verse when I was in that Nehemiah chapter. And now that I think about it, I don't think it's Nehemiah chapter 9. I think it's Ezra chapter 9 that has that principle. It's a powerful principle. Now that I think about it. And so he stops wrestling. He does apply the anger. Eventually he hits us with his wrath. And, and yet when he does, even then he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Even then he has not dealt with us according to our sins. Nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. It's less. It's less. It's le- uh, less than what we deserved. And I should have had a whole lot more. Should have had a whole lot more, Right? Isn't that what it says? Isn't that Ezra 9? This is going to bug me if I don't find it. It's, um, I think it's, uh, yeah. Yes, Ezra 9, 13. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since you are our God, you, our God, have requited us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us an escaped remnant such as this. Shall we again break your commandment and intermarry with the peoples who commit this abomination and, and so forth? So that, there it is. Even when we're under divine discipline, even when we're under chastisement, as West Beck taught us Sunday night, when we're under chastisement, God is still merciful. Always oh, merciful. A God less merciful than Him would have hit us even harder for the divine discipline that we deserve as it comes down to that. All right, so that's Psalm 103, verse 8. Psalm 145 in verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. The... Um, and in Psalm 145, we've got an anticipation of uh, global worship. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Think about that. For a thousand years and a thousand generations of testifying to how good God is. And uh, the glorious splendor of your majesty on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Think about it. For a thousand years in the millennium and for a thousand generations on the new earth, one generation will tell the next how faithful God is and a resurrected David is looking forward to jumping right in the middle of that conversation (laughs) and saying, I'm going to be right there with him. I will tell of uh, your wonderful works. 
I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memories of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. So anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a marvelous thing. And it's a kingdom. As it says here, the Lord is good to all His mercies over all His works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. See, right now there's a whole lot of His work that don't. There's a whole world in rebellion. They, they're still His work, but they're not praising Him. Well, a day is coming when they will. And uh, all, uh, because this world and its works will be burned up. But the new heavens and new earth are going to testify to God's glory. And your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. How many generations? Yeah, this text says all. Other texts say a thousand. All right. So there's a blessing. How about uh, Jeremiah? Jeremiah 15, 15. You who know, O Lord, remember me. Take notice of me. Take vengeance for me on my persecutors. Do not, in view of your patience, take me away. Know that for your sake I endure reproach. So again, we see that he is slow to anger and he has that patience, that long nostril is the idiom there. Joel 2.13. There's more there in Jeremiah, but I'm taking too long on this slide. I know, it's overkill. Do we have to see all ten? Well, if God saw fit to write it down ten times in his Bible, maybe he was making a point. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, if you get to Amos, you've gone too far. Joel 2.13. And here in Joel 2, you've got these demon scorpions in the tribulation that are coming to afflict Israel. Uh, this is day of the Lord, wrath of God stuff here in, uh, in Joel 2. Um, the Lord, verse 11, the, in verse 10, you know, the, uh, the earthquakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters His voice before His army. Surely His camp is very great. For strong is He who carries out His word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? You know, anyone? Or is all the whole population of planet Earth about to be destroyed? Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And that's what it takes to repent, for Israel to repent. Rend your heart and not your garments. Don't make it just a phony show. <laughs> you won't be fooling God if you're just putting on a phony show. Rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, relenting of evil. And who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. 
proclaim a solemn assembly. There are occasions when you just got to stop and do something out of the normal. You got to stop and say, this is something different. This is unique. We're going to spend a fourth of the day in Bible class and a fourth of the day in prayer. And we're going to, you know, we're going to consecrate and proclaim a solemn assembly. This day is different. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, everybody. Gather the children and the nursing infants, everybody. No, no uh, excused absences for this. The whole nation has to come together. Let the bridegroom come out of his room, the bride out of her bridal chamber. Wedding's on hold, honeymoon has to wait. This is serious. As a nation, we've got we've to repent. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach. A byword among the nations. Why should they say uh, among the people say, where is their God? Oh, that's a powerful text. Day of the Lord in the book of Joel. And in the very midst of that is what? The reminder that God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. You can imagine as Israel goes through the tribulation, that's going to be a big hope for them. Uh, Jonah 4.2. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. And of course... (laughs) Jonah is quoting this, but he's not happy to be quoting this. Jonah knows that God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, which is why he tried to run to Tarshish, why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He hates this. He wants God to be patient with him, but why would God be patient with these Assyrians? Ooh. Hmm. So it displeased Jonah and he became angry and he prayed to the Lord and he said, please, Lord, I told you so. Was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. This very precious promise, this principle that we love was the trigger that that Jonah just did not want to see God's grace applied to the men of Nineveh. How sad is that? And the Lord said, are you kidding me? And here's, uh, you know, uh, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? Verse 11, the great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand. Okay, they're ignorant. Get them some truth. Not only that, they're going to respond to the warning with positive volition. They're going to repent. As well as many animals. Anyway, you have compassion on the plant that died. You don't care about the 120,000 Assyrians. All right. And then Nahum 1.3. Of course, Nahum is Jonah part 2. And uh, Nahum has the heart that wants to see Nineveh repent, and they don't. Sadly, they don't. So Nahum 1.3, the Lord is slow to anger, great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is His way, and clouds are the dust beneath His feet. So just because He's patient doesn't mean you get a get-out-of-jail-free card. You will face consequences for your sin. There will be ramifications. There will be judgment. There will be uh, consequences. Just face them in, in blessing instead of cursing. Face them in fellowship. All right. 
Four times used of man in Proverbs 14, 29, 15, 18, 16, 32, 25, 15. And when it is used of man, it's always in the positive. It's always what we're called to do. We already saw 14, 29. I'll read it again. Um, he who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. So grow in the Word of God. Gain your great understanding from wisdom. Become a, a believer a powerful in the Scriptures. That great understanding will assist you in being slow to anger. As it says there. 1518. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. So have that kind of wisdom. Be slow to anger. Come alongside and stop things in their tracks and say, wait a minute. Okay? Be the uh, be the voice of wisdom in such a such a circumstance while the hot-tempered man is stirring up the strife. Uh, 1632. 1632. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. So, you want to be better than Rambo? (laughs) Right? A mighty man of valor. uh, A super soldier that can you know, the mighty man of valor that can go capture a city all by himself? Think about it. When, when, when um, Caleb was offering his daughter's hand in marriage and says, you know, the first man up there that throws down the, that giant off the wall gets to marry my daughter. You know, and think about a, a great hero from Samson or anyone from the Old Testament and they could go conquer a city. The Bible says, well, the slow to anger man is better than that. Probably rarer than that. <laughs> All right, better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit, and really that's what happens. You you lost sovereignty over your spirit, lost sovereignty over your soul. You just snapped at the trigger, and then you confessed and got back in fellowship. But there it is, positive twenty five fifteen. By forbearance a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue breaks the bone. So there you go. That's nice for our political leaders can have patience as well. Um, of course uh, the New Testament antidote is even better. The fruit of the Spirit is macrothumia, is long-suffering, Galatians 5.22. And we have it there. Now Satan has a, an antidote or an improvement Satan, uh, the satanic improvement, quote-unquote, obviously, um, to the quick-tempered foolishness is a slow-scheming evil. The satanic improvement to quick-tempered foolishness is a slow-scheming evil. And so this is um, the alternative. This is not true long-suffering. This is not true slow-to-anger and abounding in loving-kindness. This is a slow, boiling, simmering anger that is scheming and plotting. There's no grace in it. There's no truth in it. This is the second part of, uh, of the verse. The quick, the, uh, where we've been looking at the quick-tempered man is, uh, acts foolishly, but a man of evil devices. This is the man who ends up being hated. And uh, to, to take your quick temper and use it as a, uh, as a um, 
a component of your evil device. Whatever it is you're taking time to, to build, to manufacture, to assemble, and just this little thing of anger goes into that. It's a piece that goes into that, and another piece of anger goes into that, another piece of anger goes into that, and you're, you're assembling this uh, Lincoln Log Tinker Toy thing, and, and every piece you're putting into the, every Lego brick is, is uh, another anger that you didn't fly off the handle and express it, you just dampened it down and suppressed it and fed it into this machine. We actually saw a glimpse of this earlier in chapter uh, 12 and verse 2. A good man will obtain favor from the Lord, but he, uh, but he, the Lord, will condemn a man who devises evil. Who devises evil. The slow scheming evil, to be an inventor of evil, to take your God-given creativity, which is in the image of God, and instead of using a creative mind to glorify Jesus Christ and to serve God and to portray the image and likeness of God in the angelic conflict, instead, this angry, scheming, evil believer takes his creative God-given talents and starts to devise evil. Inventors of evil, as the Scripture says. And it's horrible, absolutely horrible. And so they stand condemned. God, the Lord, Yahweh, will condemn a man who devises evil. The, um, that's Proverbs 12, 2. We've already seen Proverbs 14, 17. How about Proverbs 24, 8? Verse 7 says, wisdom is exalted for, too exalted for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. One who plans to do evil, men will call a schemer. The devising of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to men. So we can scheme, and we can plot, and we can plan. God is very well practiced at thwarting such things. Psalm 139. Back up to the Psalms. Psalm 139, oh, verse 19, O that you would slay the wicked, O God, depart from me therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. And then he follows it up with, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Notice all that hatred is not um, a hurtful way. He's hating what God hates. Anyway, the, uh, the wicked and the men of bloodshed there in verse 19 uh, have the same vocabulary as the slow scheming evil that we're dealing with in Proverbs. That's who these wicked are. And they are scheming and they are plotting. They speak against you wickedly in verse 20. So they are um, scheming evil against God. And then finally, Jeremiah 5. Our last passage as we're running out of time. Wicked men are found among my people. 
And uh, is this the chapter where he sends, uh, no it's not, there's a chapter where he sends Jeremiah out if he can find one righteous man. Um, Anyway, uh, they are plotting, they are schemers. Wicked men are found among my people. They watch like fowlers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of birds. So their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and rich. They are fat and they are sleek. They also excel in deeds of wickedness. Both hands do it well. I mean, they've, they specialize in this. Uh, do they, uh, they do not plead the cause, uh, the cause of the orphan that they may prosper. They do not defend the rights of the poor. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord? On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? Of course. Of course. If God is going to be righteous, yeah, this is the chapter. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and look now, take note, seek in her open squares. If you can find a man, just one, it's all he wants, if there is one who does justice, who seeks truth, I will pardon her. Sodom could have been spared if there were ten. But he tells Jeremiah, go find me one. Find one. All right. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for Proverbs. Open our eyes, Father, to our short-temperedness. And uh, me most of all, Father, I, I'm preaching to myself today. So thank you for the Scriptures. Help us to be long-nostrilled, slow to anger, as we are abounding in loving kindness and truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.